Hey folks, we've got an update on this show, an update on some of the people from the rise and fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News, as well as an interview with graphic novel documentarian Brian Box Brown about his new book, The He-Man Effect. All of this and more. So let's get ready to dial up, log on, and download. Welcome. Welcome to Download. I'm Joe Scott. I'm here in my house getting ready to go on my annual trip to the Carolina coast, which uh, is great for two reasons. One, it's always good to go there. Uh, just sitting out there on the beach, reading, relaxing, uh, it really just detoxes my brain. I think it's the sound of the ocean. It sort of just is a natural way to just defrag a lot of the cluttered chaotic thoughts that I might have accumulated over the years but I think the other reason is this um, when I was working on the rise and fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News uh, I finished the very last episode The Air We Breathe uh, there on that annual vacation last year so I thought it would be great to take a quick moment before I get in the car and uh, drive four hours to just uh talk with you guys a little bit about the show and how things are going. Yeah, it's been a year since we've made a new episode, and I'm sure some people are wondering, when are we going to begin work on new episodes or stories? And uh, the answer to that is this. I have been working on new episodes, uh, but uh, <laughs> there's a little twist. We, we hit two roadblocks. Uh, one story we pursued, which was very internet-focused, um, it just got too dangerous, you know, uh, working on the Harry Knowles story. I think we definitely um, stirred up kind of a micro troll army. And I realized very quickly as I was working on this, uh, this internet focused story, uh, which was really compelling to me. I was actually honestly very obsessed with it, but uh, I just realized it was too dangerous. Uh, the trolls tied to this story are far more malicious, uh, are far more dangerous um, and so um, as things got even slightly difficult uh, in the reporting and the research, I just realized I need to get away from this um, just for the safety and, and health and overall well-being of uh, my family. So I backed away from that story entirely. Um, I then pursued another story. And, you know, the way I the way I do stories, I get an idea of who I want to talk to. And then I do a lot of research because I don't want to just reach out to someone having done no research. And so I poured months of research into this other story idea I had. It was more, uh, it was slightly internet focused, but more movie focused. And um, after a few months of research, I reached out to this person. Uh, they seemed to appreciate the time I took to research their work, but they didn't want to do an interview. They didn't want to talk about what happened uh, with the story. I think uh, they carry some personal scars, some personal issues related to that. And they, they just are trying to keep it all behind them, which I understand entirely. That's their choice and I respect their decision. It, it never feels great to leave a lot of research just there behind, but that's what I did again. That happened twice, but I have some good news. 
Um, I finally have a new show. It was sort of an idea that was given to me by a media partner, someone who's going to be working with us at least tangentially on this project. And I've got several interviews already underway. And uh, this project will be uh, more episodic as opposed to like a giant long form story. And uh, what's really good is the main person I wanted to talk to for my very first episode, who was incredibly difficult to find and to contact, I found them. And we've had three conversations so far, and we're beginning to find a story that I think tackles a lot of ideas and themes that inspire me. And uh, I hope maybe the same will be for you, but um, it's going to take me a little while to get around this piece and around other pieces that'll be part of sort of the first season of this new project. But uh, when I have something ready to share, uh, you'll be able to find that here on this feed. One quick plug. I was very fortunate uh, to do an interview with uh, Barbara Genova. She wrote a piece about this podcast and about my work. Uh, and she was just asked a lot of really thoughtful questions. I've known Barbara for a minute uh, now. She sort of approached me first as a listener of the show. We just began a correspondence. And uh, yeah, it was really nice to have someone who had done a lot of thoughtful sort of introspection about my work. And uh, gave me a chance to kind of reflect on what we had done almost an entire year ago. So that was really cool. And I'm going to add a link to that interview in our show notes. It's not a podcast. You actually have to read it, but I think uh, it was really, I think it turned out really great. Before we jump into this interview, I did with uh, Brian Box Brown about his new book, The He-Man Effect, which comes out on July 11th. I wanted to share a few updates about some of the people we covered in our first story, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News. But to do that, I want to start by playing a clip from our final episode, The Air We Breathe. So without further ado, previously on the last episode of the Download Podcast. Also, we just found out as we were recording these credits that Elon Musk is currently trying to back out of his bid to purchase Twitter. Fantastic. In the meantime, definitely find ways to lift up, support, and defend the voices of people who aren't like you. <laughs> and, you know, listen to that. I sound so chipper, so assured. But what the fuck did I know, right? You know, essentially, Twitter sued Elon Musk and said, hey, you offered to buy our website for a ridiculous amount of money. You can't pull back your offer now. And uh, being sort of forced by uh, this lawsuit, uh, he ponied up the cash and took over Twitter. You know, And I kind of hit on the fact that if Elon took over Twitter and got rid of its moderation protocols, which he did, that Twitter would essentially become exactly like the talkbacks of Ain't It Cool News, which were a haven for toxic hate speech directed at women, people of color, and queer folks. All of those things have happened. And what's crazy is he's actually letting these toxic chuds pay $8 a month to amplify their horrible voices. But what I didn't realize is that it would actually be worse than Ain't It Cool News. You know, saying that it was going to become talkbacks was almost an insult to talkbacks based on how Twitter turned out. You know, one time I was just on Twitter and I was just scrolling through my feed and I caught a video and there was just a, a kitten. I was like, oh, a cute kitten. Then a hand enters the frame and picks the kitten up and throws it in a blender. 
and caps the lid on. And I had to suddenly scroll because I saw a finger was getting ready to press the button and blend this kitten into bits. And uh, it was awful. It was terrible. Nothing like that has ever happened on the talkbacks of Ain't It Cool News. And uh, I think all of the advertisers who are pulling out of Twitter and no longer advertising on that platform are absolutely right to do so. You know, and as of this week, we now have these two major Twitter clones, Blue Sky, which was created by Twitter founder Jack Dorsey, and and that's where I'm at. Um, I'll share a link to that in the show notes. And then there's another one called Threads, which was created by Mark Zuckerberg as an offshoot of Instagram. And, you know, I have a lot of friends who are suddenly on Threads as well, but I'm personally going to pause before I open another social media account with Mark Zuckerberg. He's got enough of my data right now. Um, Some other updates. Let's talk about uh, some of the actual people who were in the rise and fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News. Uh, The first one I want to discuss is someone who is secretly the main character of the story, Drew McWeeny, who is one of my favorite writers at Ain't It Cool News. It appears that Netflix may or may not be making another season of war. At least they've not announced one yet. In the meantime, Drew is continuing to work on both his Substack as well as a brand new podcast he's calling The Hip Pocket, which I hope launches very soon. And I will put links for each of those projects in the show notes so you can keep up with what Drew is doing on your own. But then there was something major that happened late last year. And uh, I don't know too many details, but Drew announced that basically he's now working on a show. Or a pro- it might not be a show. It might actually be a movie. But I think it's a show. Uh, he's been very mum on the details. But he's been working on it until he was ultimately forced to stop due to the writer's strike. But, um, you know, I'm really curious to see what he does, what he makes. I wish him all the best. Um, another major character, C. Robert Cargill. Uh, his movie, The Black Phone, made a lot of money. It was the first movie to sort of ignite a non-sequel horror craze in the post-pandemic box office. And he's not only working as a writer, but is now a producer on a new film called The Gorge, which stars Anya Taylor-Joy and Miles Teller and Sigourney Weaver. Really looking forward to that. Eric Vespi is still running strong with the King cast, his Stephen King podcast. Uh, That's always good. Uh, Steve Procopi, a.k.a. Capone, is uh, doing... Exciting work with the Music Box Theater in Chicago. Every time he promotes a screening, whether it's like a 70 millimeter presentation of 2001 or a collection of Wes Anderson films in 35 millimeter, I just immediately feel terrible that I don't live in Chicago because I would love to attend all of those screenings. But um, if I had to pick of all the people who worked with Ain't It Cool News, if I had to pick sort of a post Ain't It Cool News career, um, I think Steve's sounds the best by far. I would love to work in a theater like the Music Box, but uh, that's really awesome. Another person we talked to, uh, Jeremy Smith, a.k.a. Mr. Beaks. Uh, He seems to be doing all right. I hope he will eventually release his memoir slash history of internet film journalism soon. And then the last person we'll talk about is uh, Alan Cerny, you know, the person I sort of befriended while working on this project. Uh, as we spoke about in that last episode, he was retiring from his job. 
well, ultimately he did that and then decided to unretire. I think uh, it's kind of hard to fill the days if you're so used to having a day job. And then you take that away. Like, what do you do with all that time? I think he struggled to find that answer. And so he just went back to work. He's still working in film criticism. He's still hosting a podcast. And uh, I'm really excited to see what he does next. For the website, Ain't It Cool News, perhaps goaded by this project, a writer named Eric McClanahan, who wrote for Ain't It Cool under the name McEric, began pumping out a lot of work for Ain't It Cool News. You know, there was a period where they were lucky to have maybe more than one or two articles a month. Uh, suddenly he was just packing it with uh, his byline and uh, a lot of articles, a lot of content. And then suddenly that has slowed down again. But the site is still live. Now it's time to set you up for our guest, a person who was honestly a big inspiration behind the work that we did on this podcast. He's a graphic novelist, documentarian, or documentary graphic novelist, Brian Box Brown. And, you know, one day I read his book, Tetris, The Games People Play, which is about the dirty deals and behind the scenes, just douchebaggery that happened. Uh, behind the video game Tetris, which is one of the greatest video games of all time. And Brian not only did a great job of sort of capturing uh, this moment, uh, this crucial moment in the history of nerd culture, but also sort of tying it to capitalism and the way it affected, uh, in particular, the Russian developers who built this video game. You know, he really showed me that there's a lot of things that have happened sort of in these nerd spaces that are interesting and uh, that have great stories. And Brian has a new book. And one of the reasons I'm actually talking to him right now is because Brian has a new book coming out July 11th called The He-Man Effect, How American Toy Makers Sold Your Childhood. And in our show, one of the things that we chronicled is how after many professional film critics lost their jobs, there was this pivot in cinema culture where most big-budget films produced by studios were based on brands and well-known IP. And this led to an explosion of comic book movies, which has recently hit its exhaustion point uh, with the flop of the Warner Brothers film The Flash. But even then, these same studios are expanding to make films based on other properties, well-known properties, like video games with uh, the Super Mario Brothers, which is the highest-grossing film of this year, despite many poor reviews, as well as Barbie, based on the popular doll by Mattel, a film which many believe could have the most hype of any film being released this year, and Mattel actually announced an entire slate of film projects based on their toys, including Barney, which they are saying is going to be this A24 style project starring Oscar-winning actor Daniel Kaluuya, whatever that means, uh, as well as Hot Wheels, which its attached director, J.J. Abrams, promises will be an emotional, grounded, and gritty film. I, I never thought that when I played with those toys as a kid. And then, yes, even He-Man. And the question is, why are these brands still so popular? And Brian's book actually sets out to show us the reasons, which are all tied to federal regulations that were intended to actually protect children from the deeply persuasive power of TV advertisements, which impacted their minds far greater than adults, and how corporations push to have these regulations 
lifted during the Reagan administration. And when that happened, the result were children's TV series like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, Glow Friends, Popples, My Little Pony, etc. All of which were basically toy advertisements disguised as TV shows. And what Brian argues in his book, and what makes me deeply afraid, not only as a parent, but as someone who grew up during this time, is that these shows hijack a space in a child's developing mind that is typically reserved for imagination and replaces it with marketing propaganda disguised as lore, which children remember and recite almost like passages from the Bible. And what's worse is that they carry this knowledge with them for the rest of their lives, uh, whether it's the stories, the theme songs, the character names. They carry this the rest of their lives as nostalgia. It just begs the question, what is the future or even the hope of the human imagination? And this is one of the things I tried to find out during my talk with Brian. We also talk about what it was like for him as a nonfiction storyteller to see the Apple Plus film Tetris crib so much of his work and story beats from his graphic novel without giving him so much as a thank you mention in the credits, among many other things. And without further ado, here is Brian Box Brown. So as an adult who's well into his middle age, there's few joys in my life than going into my local comic book store, which uh, if you're ever in Greensboro, North Carolina, hit up Selfish Comics, Greensboro. But going into my local comic book shop and finding out there's a brand new graphic novel by our guest today, Brian Box Brown. I I immediately buy them. (laughs) I immediately read them. and, And I... You know, there's part of me that tries to rationalize. Let's partial out the joy here because you got to make this last. <laughs> it, it takes a long time to make original graphic novels, but yeah. um, inev- invariably I just binge the whole thing in one day. And uh, he's got a brand new graphic novel uh, coming out July 11th. That's the He-Man effect. Uh, Brian Box Brown, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah. So let's talk about this new book you've got coming out. Um, it's sort of... First off, what what I really like about your work is that um, you really do embrace the genre of documentary within the medium of comic books. And very few people do that. I think even fewer people do it well. And, and you find a way to keep it punchy, interesting. And, and I think part of it is that you really find story concepts and angles that few people considered. And, and with this book, what you're essentially doing is you're telling the story about how due to deregulation in children's TV program during the 80s and during the Reagan era, you had toy manufacturers who brazenly just made TV shows to sell toys to children, uh, i.e. people like me. And I, I'm, I'm guessing based on how you look, you probably are growing up around the same time in the 80s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what what inspired this idea to tell this story? It was because I was like going through this period of revisiting all this stuff that I loved as a kid. And, um, and 
under trying to understand this feeling that I was having, you know, this feeling of nostalgia that's like was so intense. I remember mm-hmm. I, I would do it like while I was working, I would always watch TV. I still do that all the time. <laughs> and um I would spend some time like I think I was like listening to Howard Stern show all morning and like it would take till the afternoon to listen to the whole thing. So then by like the afternoon, I'd be like, I need something else. And I would find all this old stuff that I used to like. And this was like a while ago now. And you know, probably like 10 years ago. And uh, you know, I'm revisiting all this stuff and I, and I'm like, wow, man, I like really I'm getting these like intense feelings from like <laughs> looking at this stuff. And like I'm like buying the old toys, you know, um and, and looking at all this old stuff. And it, and it it's occurring to me, I think, I don't know if I went to a toy show or something like that. Um, I don't know if I had started the book at that point, but it, but it really like was solidifying going to that show because I was like, look at all this commerce that's happening now. This is like a huge packed toy show in Oaks, Pennsylvania. There was like G.I. Joe karaoke and like <laughs> everything. <laughs> I mean, it was like just cartoon karaoke, but there was a person singing the G.I. Joe movie theme song. And it was amazing. Uh, you know, Sergeant Slaughter was there. Like, uh, you know, it was just like big nostalgia fest, which is big business, you know, uh, across the country. And I'm just thinking about like how effective the advertising was at that time that it's still reaping all of these benefits for all of these people that are this is a whole huge huge i mean niche but big market for this this type of stuff i mean and then you start thinking about it and you're looking at um what's going on what you see in in mainstream media too i mean there's how many transformers movies at this point um they're always looking for ways to reboot all these 80s properties because there's such like a built-in this like built-in intense uh like passion for these things because it, and i was just like there's got to be some story here at, at some point doing this i was like what's the story though that like there was a million toys that came out in the 80s and like people still like them and so that was like what i was thinking about for like a long time and just like whatever i was like buying sears catalogs and like a lot of those times when i'm i'm like like slowly slow burning working on a graphic novel for like 10 years before i realized that's what i was doing because like i just am doing something and at some point i have these obsessions and stuff and like at some point it comes together into something and with the He-Man thing, I was just like, there's got to be, you know, then it all comes, then it's like He-Man and G.I. Joe and then Star Wars. And then, you know, looking at the behavior of like the fan base, Star Wars fan base. And like yeah. with with the racism. Yeah. All kinds of stuff, like crazy stuff, like anything that just does, goes against their understanding of what star wars is becomes like this like a uh, crazy controversy and like people heresy just, yeah just forget yeah, heresy right there's people like you know all this stuff and i'm like what is this you know and 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 it goes back to that reagan deregulation thing which was like that something that happened across the board at that time period they were deregulate i mean that was reagan's whole platform really is to deregulate 
I mean, it was basically like the still the GOP platform for yeah. most things is to just deregulate everything. So except for trans lives, they definitely want to regulate right. and those. they want to regulate the shit out of cannabis as well. Um, yeah. So, but like other stuff where they make a lot of money, they they want to deregulate, and it all comes from this this time period. Um, and uh, you know, it's it, it's a lot about thinking about the Reagan administration and like. You know, because this started kind of before Reagan came to office, like they had started moving this towards the end of the Carter administration, you know, and then when Reagan came in, it was like this opened up all the, the floodgates, right? Um, and in, so I'm looking at, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, in a way they really did just sort of red pill an entire generation with this yeah. passion that, that really borders on religious fanaticism. Because you know? it's like, it, it is like that because it's, it's something that's, that is like placed inside of like a, a, a growing child, like a very impressionable child. And um, like, they knew the power that they knew, like we knew, knew. all the things they did because it's like, they knew the power of, what advertising does to children. Like we had the regulations in place in the seventies to protect children because they know that children can't tell the difference between a TV show and a commercial. They can't tell that they're being advertised to like, yeah, they, you know, it's just like this, this market that shouldn't be a market. It's just children's imaginations. I mean, um, and you know, we had the regulations in place to protect them and we had recognized the, 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 uh, detrimental nature of heavy advertising to, to young children. You know, I, when He-Man came out, I was three. You know what I mean? Like, and I had all those toys. I was three. Same. I had yeah. all the toys as well. Yeah. And all Star Wars and stuff and, and G.I. Joe and Transformers. And it was a million other things that went by the wayside that are like secondary and tertiary toy properties. Um, and uh, so we knew that that was a... a, a an issue but we decided you know as a nation to not care <laughs> yeah and, and reagan was like hired you know appointed a um a guy to run the fcc who believed that the television should be regulated like a toaster uh in the sense that they're just both electronics and that's all uh, one of them can't burn your house down um, right. if it's not configured correctly. You know, as someone who grew up in this action figure toy boom of the 80s, and then also as a parent, and you, I think you're a parent as well, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I have to admit that this book you wrote scared me. Yeah. And, you know, it, it sort scares of made me, me too. I... <laughs> it it made me wonder if these guys stole our imagination to sell toys and cheap cartoons and what were you trying to scare me? That's what I want to know. <laughs> um, you know, I think that um, as I got into it, I was just like not shying away from what was going on for real. And I, and I actually wrote most of this before I was an experienced parent. Um, and so I, but I was like, you know, a little, you know, my son was young um, when I had finished this, but uh, I still now, you know, we have Disney Channel. My son, I have a uh, almost two year old son that watches like all all the stuff. Yeah, <laughs> not all of it. I mean, some stuff I just um, that I feel that is just like blatant 
this model where it's like advertising to kids, toys, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just like, I know we're not watching that some stuff, but there's also like, you know, stuff that's, I feel is like very, very good uh, stories and cartoons like for children and they do sell the toys of it. But like, for some reason to me, it feels less salacious as like an advertising thing. Do you, do you have an example, you know, just so I can make sure I'm not destroying my kid. No, I mean, my favorite show is bluey. Uh, and they have a million toys for that. I mean, like that, and that's a great example. And I think there's one thing bluey does that cartoons in our generation didn't do. I, I felt like cartoons when we were growing up, were were always driven by sort of cheap, shallow conflict. <laughs> These characters sort of locked in like a blood feud and just genocidal rage wipe the other team <laughs> so much out. of that yes and where you know you watch bluey with your kid and you're like oh wow this is about emotional intelligence and caring yeah. about people and we we didn't have that growing up like it was like yeah if someone disagrees with you you have to wipe them out it's not enough to just let them exist you have to go into their base and destroy their base and try to destroy them like they cannot be allowed to live <laughs> as i got older it's like wow i kind of absorbed a lot of uh wrong lessons about how that to is react. a good uh summation of a lot of the plots of the shows it was like you got a base place that good guys bad guys you know that was like the concept of all, every ship well, you know, the Transformers, I mean, they, there were literally episodes of the Transformers where they just saw the Decepticons just harvesting food. And like, we got to stop them. It's like, <laughs> they really are just trying to eat right now. <laughs> like, maybe take take a break this week, guys. That's Let's... so funny. That's so true. They're just harvesting Energon to live in this. They're, they're also <laughs> in this, in this uh, island, you know, desert, deserted planet in their way you know separated from their home yeah they're just <laughs> so trying funny. to live right now like <laughs> i get it if they're coming after you stop them but it's like now you're you really are just trying to wipe them out it is true though like the the like if you look at like cobra commander like in terms of they made in terms of like creating a bad guy character they created a person that was so messed up yeah <laughs> like, he was like <laughs> he would do such awful things for no reason just like totally maniacal <laughs> that like yeah. de- violent uh and, and then like he's truly a monster <laughs> like completely zero empathy yeah yeah you know, that's and then- what it was like and, yeah definitely and there's you know i mean there's still adventure shows and, and things like that now i think they have toned things down a lot since then but like the marketing stuff in some ways is worse now than it ever was. Um, If you look at like the consolidation and the ways in which like Disney can exploit a property are so infinite and vast and growing at at such an accelerated rate all the time. There's a show that came out, right? Um, It it reminded me of all of this is that that came out this month called Star Wars little vision or something no, no it's literally looks looks like coco melon and it's oh like, yeah yeah and it's like the kid children that age like for two and three year olds and it's just to me that feels like so sinister to me now because I, it's like 
you're getting these children in at such a young age and knowing that you're going to keep them until they die yeah basically i mean like it, it feels that feels like sinister to me so so with that one you you, you which my kid has seen several episodes and she uh-huh. likes but with that one you're like no way kid you're not watching this uh, no because i'm just like whatever it's just like a thing i think the most important thing as the as they're growing up and getting older is to like remind them about what advertising is because it's at this point i you know we're not i don't see any way we're we're gonna pull pull back advertising um it's so so prevalent and always growing and it would be like you know almost impossible to to kind of like pull it back but you know you can educate your kid as you're growing up at to, as to what things are like a seminal thing to, that i saw as a kid was a show called buy me that on hbo which like explained a lot of advertising tricks and how i remember that works. yeah and and i think that stuff like that is extremely helpful not just for children adults need to understand like a lot of the concepts of advertising and the ways that corporations are pulling your strings or else you're just beholden to them and yeah just doing what they you know, what they want yeah. To do. Well, you know, I think one interesting thing about being a parent in the streaming era is that my kids sees very few commercial commercials. Mm-hmm. You know, all, all I think all commercialization she absorbs now is in the content. You know, she'll see mm-hmm. a, like a Star Wars cartoon and want Star Wars stuff, or she'll right. see a right. Little Mermaid cartoon and want to see this new Little Mermaid right. live action film. There's so less, I, yeah, but there's less commercials. You know, when I was a kid. Other than the cartoons which were directly selling toys, you know, one time I I just watched a whole bunch of commercials from Nickelodeon, like just commercial blocks from Nickelodeon. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it really was sandwiched in a way where it was sugar toy sugar, and it was that phalanx. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, getting older now, like one of the things I've been trying to do and, and that my doctor definitely wants me to do is eat less sugar. Yeah. You know, and uh, it was just, they really did leave us to fend for ourselves. I mean, they put the, they, there was a lot of people operating without considering the long-term, or maybe they did consider the long-term effects and just didn't care because the profit motive was so high. Or if I'm being generous, they just didn't realize. But I, I think that they probably did know that it was bad and just, don't really care because they it was so great to finally be able to make to do this uh business model they wanted yeah. to do yeah i mean and it came down at the highest levels i mean if you look at who owned he-man um it was a corporation that was like a fifth biggest corp it was the westinghouse corporation which is yeah. a huge <laughs> huge corporation um and so like you know they they push, you know, deregulation like that doesn't just like happen because Reagan's like, I love deregulation myself. You know, this is my idea. No, it's like the at the, at the time the Democrats were had the funding of late, you know, labor unions and that type. Those were the people that funded the Democratic Party, companies, corporations. They were all on the right. And yeah. so, like that before, those is like before Bill Clinton. So, like in 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 Reagan, if you can imagine, he had the power of 
every corporation on his side. So like everybody was in lockstep on how this was going to work. Um, and like, this is good. Yeah. Like then Reagan, you know, the more I research about Reagan, he's like, that's the face of this like movement of yeah. deregulation, you know, and you know, Reaganism, Reaganomics basically like, um, and uh, you know, this was planned. It was, like I said, they had gotten started before Reagan got to office. Reagan came to office and it was like, boom, blew the doors off the thing by 1982. You know, it was like the, the, the dates where He-Man started airing and when the actual law changed are so close together. Yeah. And it's like, it couldn't possibly, they couldn't possibly have learned about the law change and then started working on He-Man. Like that didn't happen. Like they, they, in my opinion, started working on He-Man knowing that this was the next step down the road. They were wiggling the tooth, knowing they could pull it out. Yes, at that yes. date, mm-hmm. like this is the extraction date. Let's get yes. ready. It's like when uh, you know, prohibition ended. Um, they had cases of beer ready to go that that day. <laughs> so, so uh, it's kind of like that. Yeah, a, they were a testament ready. to American industry. Yeah, they were ready to go. Um, well, you know, a lot of these yeah. toy manufacturers were were plastic companies. Like they, they made plastic. So like we can just mold them into parts that kids will buy at a 500, 600% markup. Yeah. And, and they really are. Even now, this is another thing when I was reading about, you know, doing this research. And now when I get my kids toys, I take it out of the box. I'm like, this is such a piece of crap. Like it's just this tiny, like molded plastic in such a certain way that you put stickers on. It's just like trash. Like, it's just like, I hate buying kids stuff like that. At the same time, when I was five, I loved that piece of plastic. (laughs) So, so, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy because it's trash really. And it's like floating in the sea. I, I think of like the Captain Planet toys all floating in the giant plastic, uh, Islands floating in the Pacific Ocean. Like, yeah, the the irony there because yeah. they they did make toys. Yep. With my kid, one of the things I've I've really tried to be mindful of, and and this really went out the window during the pandemic, was how much time she spent on tablet and on devices because I really think those things can just have a hypnotic. Oh yeah. Power, you know. And, and when we hit the pandemic and she was at home, she couldn't go to daycare or to school anymore. And I just had to watch her and then try to work a full-time job. You know, I really did have to just sort of shove yeah. the tablet in her it's face. Like, it's, it's like help. It's because our world is so profit-driven and messed up. We have to work all the time. It's so difficult to to do both things, right? Yeah. Watch your kids. So these end up being like, all right, listen, I just got to make dinner. Look at my phone here. Here's my yeah. phone for a little while. And then you make dinner or you do whatever you're doing. And then you're like, oh, I'm going to look at my phone. All right, well, I guess I should stop. We should all stop looking at our phones now because it's like two out, an hour or whatever has gone by. And now your kid's like, Bruh. and then they don't, you know, my son's almost two. He's so young. And like, he still is like, give me that phone. He's like, Cocoa melon. <laughs> you well, know 
you know, I give when we're at a restaurant and my kid's getting antsy waiting for the food, I, I will give her my phone or play a game. And someone was sort of commenting on that. It's like, wow, like that's what parents do these days. And I thought about when I was a kid, my parents just hit us. Yeah, we're like, <laughs> so it's like, I don't hit my kid. I, I do give her a phone, which, so maybe that's better. Yeah. Yeah. That's gotta be a, that's gotta definitely. be a step forward, Brian. Right. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I would get, you would get yelled at a lot. We'd just be like, shut up, sit down. No, I'm just giving my parents like, making it seem to be like demons, but you know, they'd be like, there was just like, you have no choice or no, the other thing they would give us stuff like at a restaurant, there was crayons and stuff like that. This is in a way, a better version of that also i remember at restaurants they'd have like you'd be at i'd go out to like eat with my parents and they'd have like two arcade games in the <laughs> galaga in the little yeah in the little area where you come in and so you know when you finish dinner and you're antsy they'd give you like a dollar and quarters and say go play this. so it's not too different Getting some real Pizza Hut vibes right now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Every was... restaurant was like that when I was, oh my God. You'd walk in anywhere, they'd have like Street Fighter, not Street Fighter, but before that, like Pac Man. In the afterward you wrote as part of the book, you disclosed that you were a fan of some of these toys and cartoons. And I guess I was just curious, which of these did you like? And can you see examples of how they might have impacted you psychologically? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, well, First of all, like I had all the G.I. Joe, Transformer, and He-Man. Like those were like the three main ones. Holy like, Trinity. Was, like, yeah, exactly. Um uh and uh but I also really liked uh Thundercats a lot. That was like one of my favorites. I watched like all of these shows. Like I remember watching um uh the Inhumanoids, which was like a show a crazy toy it was a crazy show i remember watching it as a little kid and being scared to death like as scared as like watching a horror movie like it was so like the guys were just like it was like they were like booger monsters right yeah they were scary man (laughs) they had cool toys and they were they were i remember getting those toys too and there was also a lot of stuff um back then that would be like a movie tie-in like get like aliens toys and stuff like it's an r-rated movie like a rambo toys like these are like (laughs) r-rated films you uh, play as a shell-shocked vietnam war vet at home kids (laughs) um i remember having the rambo toys i remember having i probably got like i remember having the dungeon dragons toys probably would get like one or two of like all of these franchises and the ones that stuck around you'd get like more than that well i I remember listening to an interview with one of the creators of these shows and he talked about how, you know, they made a show Bucky O'Hare and how it was really good, but they had to cancel it because they couldn't get the space on the toy shelves that that really determined what shows got canceled and what shows got renewed. Like ad dollars be damned. You really had to sell toys. Yeah. It's crazy how that, how that would work. I mean, nobody at that time, even you would never even consider putting out a, cartoon without a toy yeah you know um that would be like part of the whole reason like there's people scoping out like with voltron is kind of an interesting story because it was like after the success of of transformers and they were looking for the next big robot thing or whatever go bots whatever 
Robots actually came out before Transformers, which is nuts. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, People but, look uh, at it as the knockoff, but it's yeah, actually the originator. The original, yeah. Uh, they were looking for new stuff, and they found this Voltron, and like changed the entire plot of the 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 what it was about, and like cut a movie into a million episodes and all this stuff, and uh, and then just made these crazy awesome toys that went with it, and it was just like that was the model. It was like not really. It was like if you can get those two things. Right, a show that's cool with cool toys, like you're rolling in dope, right? Yeah. And it wasn't that long. It was like this short boom period. Um, you know, it, it was like my whole childhood, but it seems like it, it, in the grand scheme of things, very short, right? Before things started to change, it was like ten years or less, <laughs> really. You know, this this was something I sort of chronicled in in my documentary about Harry Knowles and when they fired film critics and sort of left these fanboy movie critics to sort of take over movie culture, the, the products, the properties, we'll call them properties, uh, that's a very shrewd term, that rose to the top were these things based on these toys we had as kids. It really was just our toy shelves, the movie. It's crazy because it went, it was the other way around. Like that was how they, they figured this out in a weird way because it was like they couldn't advertise to kids, right? Um, and so they figured out the to just make toys based on the people that were already media stars and were on TV a lot. That's why one of the biggest toys in the 70s was the Evil Knievel stunt cycle because yeah. he was on TV all the time. Right. Like he was uh, in, in media. And also then Star Wars comes out and it's like there's these are just huge toy sales because there's this amazing movie. That's like the biggest thing ever advertising to the kids all the time. Um, and that's, I think, you know, when they were like, listen, we, the way to sell toys is to tie it to media. That's why we need these cartoons to sell the toys. Um, yeah. Or else, you know, they can't do it. You know, it became like, that was the, the method was to, to, that was the way because that that's what the toys were doing. They were trying to do it like after star Wars, they were trying to make toys, but they couldn't like predict what movies were going to stick around for a year, like star Wars or a while, four months or, or whatever. And so they had to have these, they realized they had to have their own properties. You know, you talked about the toy shows and, and the people that packed these things out and spent thousands and thousands of dollars. You know, it, it, to me, what's interesting about uh, this culture, this is a culture I've, I've spent a lot of time in, is that they almost exist as pharaohs where they their home becomes their tomb and they surround themselves with all of these artifacts from their life. Yes. You know, and I say that as someone who's got a copy of their grandmother's copy of The Legend of Zelda hanging on this wall behind me. <laughs> it, it's her copy. So I'm really awesome. honoring, you know, her. She she loved video games and she That's had so this cool. one. So at the same time, it is a toy. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it does seem like an attempt to buy back our youth. To, it, to oh, my God. I mean, death. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a really good um uh, analogy the pharaoh thing because it if you look at the people so i've done a lot of this research right to um you know you can look at people that have like the most people all over tiktok and youtube and whatever have like the craziest collections imaginable 
like everything behind yeah. glass. You know, they make their basement look like a Toys R Us. Like literally, they have everything in packaging, and you know, and and I I understand that urge. I really do. It sounds silly, but I I really do. In 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 there's part of me that says, you know, if I ever like made millions of dollars and didn't have to work or anything, I might have a room dedicated to old toys and fill it up with all of my favorite old toys. And, yeah. and that's not like totally uncommon because if you look at, um, you know, like people of my dad's generation have cowboy stuff that they're like really love. And there are people that collect older toys from their own, you, you know, from way before the seventies that, you know, there's old toys for whatever that are collectible items. Um, it's just natural, um, a natural thing to like look over your life and, and remember all these things, you know, and I always have this negative perception about nostalgia because, you know, it's like the good old days were back then, but really those are not good old days. Like we've had no. so much reform and all this stuff, but I, I read a quote from someone and I'm not going to remember their name, but it was in the, in John Porcelino's, uh, uh, King cat. He's a, it's, this is a comic scene. Uh, he puts like a little note in it and it had like a quote from someone talking about listening to music of their youth over and over again. And, um, but it wasn't, an, it wasn't how we normally think of that where it's like, Oh, grow up. Like, you know, uh, start listening to new music, get with the times, man. Um, he was like, you know, looking back on all the stuff for my life and it, it, it brings new meaning. It brings back memories that I've forgotten about of that time. And um, it vibrates new each time you remember it. And it, it's, it, it's true. I mean, it's not a bad thing to remember things that happen in your life. Um, the thing I think about all the time though, is that, these wonderful memories that you're thinking back on are branded. Yeah. <laughs> Your memories are branded with, with, you know, children's toys stuff there, you know, that if you think about what humanity is about, that, that place is reserved for that feeling for when you're a child. Um, but maybe it should be like a sacred space and not something that, you think back on it and all you think about is Disney and you think about He-Man and you think about Star Wars. Maybe you should be thinking, I mean, I guess in a way, you know, you are in sometimes thinking about experiences that you've had as a kid mm -hmm. and connections that you've made over Star Wars or over something like that. But part of me is like, get out of your Star Wars. <laughs> like, just yeah. remember the connection with the other person or the experience of free play or whatever it is. I grew up in the woods and that kind of did two things. You know, I, I played a lot in the dirt and with mm. sticks and uh, I would always play this game with my brother called stunt man, where we were always just falling off a hill <laughs> in our backyard. And, you know, a lot of kids play today um, seems slightly safer, but also heavily, heavily branded. Yeah. And I think the, the, tablet thing and the constant access leads people to do more reenacting of things they've seen and less stuntman yeah you know games that they're making up uh on their own when they're you, because when you're playing pretend like that you're like making up 
it's a straight skill to learn and a, and a and a essential part of human life to to imagine things and to make things make up right. let your mind expand um when you're constantly reenacting to the letter like the script that you've seen and done uh i and i spoke to children's psychologists and things about this it's not the same thing as imaginative play which which uh you know psychologists agree is like important for child development it's like a recitation or or memorizing biblical passages right it's like yes exactly it's a recitation rather than um you know when you're pretending and playing with other kids you're like negotiating you know you are um divvying out responsibility things like that um all that stuff's important and um you know maybe maybe uh, it's all doesn't matter and it's all uh working fine and and uh this stuff has no effect on any child's uh anybody but it doesn't seem that way yeah <laughs> because we're seeing the the results in these uh in you know what the negative things that happen with with fanatical I wouldn't even call them fanatical because that would indicate that they were uh, rare, but there's a ton of people like, yeah, you know, see this stuff as gospel and, and, uh, and uh, it's almost like a conservative and liberal approach to their own imagination. (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah. And I, I I had a moment, uh, this was sort of a breaking moment for me in nerd culture where I was at a comic book convention uh, Heroes Con in Charlotte, oh, yeah. Carolina. It's a good, it's a great yeah, show. Yeah, great show. But I was there, and I was buying something from one of the vendors, and then I saw where they had a display of decals for sale uh, that they had made. These are all bootleg decals, and one of their bootleg decals was the Star Wars Rebel logo, uh, superimposed over the Southern Rebel flag, mm. and I was like, whoa. Because I, I would never, to me, it would never. It's like you watch Star Wars, you would never think those people were fighting for slavery, the heroes. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, how could you make this equivalency? But I, I really realized, you know, white male nerds, especially, I think one of the draws, one of the pulls, one of the appeals to all of this ephemera is that it brings them back to a time when when they were on top. I agree. I mean, there wasn't a challenge. There's, I mean, that's the dangerous part of, of nostalgia, right? I mean, like, that's what we talk about when we're like, you know, we're nostalgic for this period. There's this, there's a separation, I think, in a way. It's like you're nostalgic for your childhood. Um, everybody is. I think that they, everybody, in some ways, wants to relive stuff even people that i've talked to that had like very traumatic childhoods will tell me that like that it was all horrible except for i loved popples and i had my popple you know what i mean like, so it's like that it's still like brings back a positive memory but you're right i mean how far does this nostalgia go and i talk about it in the book if you're if you like it so much back then like this is this appeal to nostalgia is extremely powerful i mean this is make America great again. Right. I mean, like that's an appeal to nostalgia. 
Um, well, it goes hand in hand with fascism. Right. And it's and that's the thing. It's like you it's a feeling that you have. That feeling of your childhood and you have this happy emotional memory. But that doesn't mean that that was it was perfect then. Yeah. It's just that you had a, a good you personally had an emotional experience. Yeah. Uh, you know, that doesn't indicate that everything was wonderful for any you know it's and it, and it's provably not <laughs> yeah if you look back the farther you go back like just the worse it got um and and that's and that's when you start thinking about stuff that's a, that's where it could go though yeah um, it could well, easily so i had an experience you know i i did the thing you kind of vilified in your book i took my kid to disney world sure <laughs> and we went to uh the star wars land that they had mm-hmm. there and there's this new Star Wars ride. I'm going to spoil a little bit of it for people who've never been on the ride. But you get on the ride, and essentially you are captured by the the Empire or the fir- the First Order, sort of the sanitized version, sure. corporatized version of the New Order or, or the Empire. Empire, yeah. And they start unloading you from from vehicles and getting you in lines to go to these interrogation rooms and they're all dressed in these gray coats and they're all yelling at you and shouting at you. They're flashing lights in your face and we're all complying. That's insane. That's crazy. It was in, yeah, it was, it was in this moment of compliance to these, these fake dictators, these fake genocidal fascist soldiers that I realized like they've got us ready. Like we're ready Mm. All you've got to do is put a Marvel logo over the face of whatever it is, and they can wipe us out. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I agree. I mean, it's a powerful, powerful thing that that Disney and others are playing. You know, um, like I said, like I was saying before, like, are is this on? I, I, I like this. I like to be generous and say that there's these are unintended consequences. But maybe they didn't even consider those consequences. Yeah. I mean, um, and maybe they didn't know for, for real because they, it hadn't been done at that level. They hadn't known that this, there's like, yeah, we're just going to sell stuff to kids or whatever. Kids buy, buy toys all the time. Did not realizing that they're actually, I mean, maybe they, you know, we could debate back and forth whether they realized it or not, but they were playing with fire. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely made me rethink at least going to Star Wars Land at Disney World. I mean, there's also you're telling me about this, and I'm like, damn, I wish I was there. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's the thing. Like, that's why I had to write the afterward because I'm like, I can't. I'm not innocent here. I'm not, you know, militantly keeping my kids away from screens and never watch, never watching any children's programming or anything like that. Like. I'm just, this happened to me. Like I was part of this experiment. Uh, you know, I was that generation. And yeah. so I'm just taking time to like, look at what happened to me. Like it's yeah. me processing my own <laughs> life in a way. So I want to shift gears here and, and talk about another book you wrote. Uh, this one being your 2016 book, uh, Tetris, the games people play a book. I Highly recommend. It's a graphic documentary, graphic novel documentary about the battle for the video game rights of Tetris, uh, the popular video game from Russia. And uh, 
Then this year, Apple TV Plus produced a narrative film simply titled Tetris with actor Taron Edgerton, which makes no reference to your book, no mention of your book, but very obviously mines many of the same story beats and themes from your work. And I guess as a fellow documentarian, I, I couldn't help but wonder how you felt these uh, these weeks uh, since it came out, having done the work to tell your story only for it to kind of be copied by these other people. Um, you know, this is like a thing that happens if you're in doc doing nonfiction, right? Like yeah. I don't own that story. Like anybody can tell it, but this is not the first time this has happened to me because after the Andre the Giant book came out, which was a New York Times bestseller, my best-selling book I ever uh, made, they made an Andre the Giant documentary on HBO, which they talked to me about. Um, you know, they said they were inspired by my book to make this film. Um, didn't reference my book at, at all, or didn't even didn't interview me, didn't talk to me, didn't hmm. mention that there was a book at all. Follows the same story plot line exactly pretty much um and so this tetris thing came out and i was just like oh well i had known it was coming out for a long time and uh i was just like uh another another uh situation like that under the giant thing i don't I, and i have but i haven't watched it and i it probably because excuse me because you know i'm a little bit bitter because i want it to be based on my book or something but uh also, I'm just like, I don't care. I watching the trailer was funny and fun <laughs> to me to be like, because it's so like, uh, it seems like a very like, almost like a they made it like an action movie kind of. They did. And I actually want to ask you about that as probably uh, one of the world's uh, foremost Tetris scholars. Um, was the story of how they made Tetris um, violent? They made this look like a violent, tense thriller at um, times. Car so, chases, beatdowns. There was, it's hard to say. Uh, so, like, I don't think that. Um, uh, so, like, the on the Russian side, it's hard to say, because yeah. like we don't really know what happened. Like, they could have been speculating. Like, it, uh, it did seem pretty like a dire situation for the person making, doing the negotiating, um, because you know the higher ups were aware of Tetris because um, Robert Maxwell <laughs> told Gorbachev about Tetris. Um, and so, uh, so there was a spotlight on this deal and it was in a way like a huge deal for this new, um, you know, new uh, capitalist society yeah. to have a huge video game like that. And, um, and so on that side, yeah. Uh, Alexi, I don't know. It's more of like a, to me, like a uh, sad, not a sad story, but kind of just like, you know, this guy kind of tends to get screwed out of, out of the money for his, this game that he created more yeah. than it. I see it as like an action movie. There was a guy that helped create Tetris though, that killed himself and killed his yeah. family. They like omit that, him from the story. That entirely. is a, extremely dramatic and, and, uh, I, when I learned about that, I was like, I have to put this in the book. How could you ignore this? It's so big. Yeah. And, I, and it also tells, I think, the overall theme of the, the book, right? You have two people from Russia, uh, Alexei and his friend that uh, did this. He, um, you know, entering 
capitalist society both working on this Tetris game and, and getting help coming to the U.S. and trying to make the American dream, right? And so one guy starts working for Microsoft, become, you know, gets this great job in Seattle, eventually gets the rights back to Tetris, et cetera. One guy's company goes bankrupt and he ends up um, becoming like a family annihilator, which yeah. is somebody that kills their self and their family. And, you know, it's hard to speculate why someone would do something like that, but it's, it's a pathology. Brutal. And um, it's usually because uh, it's usually a male doing it to the family because they feel that they can't provide for the family anymore, usually financially. There's other ones. There's there's many, you know, yeah. this is from the research. This happens a lot. And, you know, it's like, look at the these are the two outcomes of a capitalist society. You know, it's like you have this person, total success, this person, total devastation. Um, And uh, so that's why I felt like I should keep it in there. And it, it, it also just like. Uh, yeah, it's crazy to me that they would not include that. Well, the other thing that the movie does, which I think is interesting, is that it really concerns itself with this Tyrion Edgerton character, one of the the big deal makers who helped land the game rights for he Nintendo. He plays Hank, Hank Rogers. Yes, mm -hmm. as opposed to the creators of Tetris, like they mm. kind of get short shrift in a movie about their game. Right. Yeah. Which, I mean, they probably got Hank's. It's probably Hank's life rights yeah probably um yeah I mean, he played a central role in the thing for sure um in making it happen and his friend him and alexi became great friends that was the other part of the story that i thought was i loved is that those guys became friends yeah. you know they became close friends um and uh and so i don't know i can't really comment too much about the movie because i didn't i did it i never watched it so <laughs> I, I don't know if I would recommend that you watch it. So you might be making the right. I was hoping choice. that it would be a huge hit and everybody would have Tetris fever and start buying my book. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it kind of brings me, you know, to sort of the next thing I want to talk with you about, uh, which, you know, really is sort of the place that you played in, in both this story and the Andre, the giant stories, the person who really locked onto these narratives and did the most work and probably walked away uh, with the least, and, and I don't know the situation, but probably of all the people involved in the Tetris movie, the least monetary benefit, um, yeah. you know, and, and this weekend there was a hashtag that broke out and, and you were sharing a lot of these posts. It's a hashtag um, that was launched in part by a friend of mine uh, and maybe you know her too, Kara McGee, mm -hmm. which is uh, hashtag comics broke me. And I was wondering if you could sort of tell listeners what this hashtag is about and and why it was important to you. Yeah, so it's about the nature of the comics business. We have a lot of stuff. We're seeing like the writer strike going on, and, yeah. and you know, talking about how there's a lot of talk all the time about um, unionization and um, you know um, the conditions of workers. And you know, I like. I mean, I don't like to do this, but I often compare. Co comic artists to pro wrestlers um we're independent contractors um we use our bodies to create this form of entertainment um and we uh often like get paid the least amount of money in the process like yeah 
almost certainly all of my editors my whole life have made way more money than me like every editor i ever worked with um because they get they're on salary they get a salary and they get um uh health insurance and all that and I, you know i had been talking the last few years even with my agent about like why can't why can't, couldn't a publisher pay for your health insurance yeah or when and like i'm also like why can't they just hire us as an employee for a year and take our taxes out and like it's just so hard being a freelancer and there's so many things working against you all the time um and so like in every way it's like a, it's harder to get a loan it's like just just so many you know the the the, the fact that you're paid here and there and everywhere and it's never regular um you're on your own for everything like you know all of this stuff and you're often the one that they consider the most responsible for promoting your book yeah um you know you have to promote every you have to not only make the book but be the face and character of the book um you know all that stuff is um and it's up to you to do that if you don't do that you just miss out i mean like um and so like there's there and it's difficult and i you know if you look at like a the marvel page rate from 1970 some two it was like yeah. the full page if you did a full page penciling inking lettering everything writing which is what i do you get paid 510 dollars per page now i've been paid 500 dollars per page a handful of times and that is where what i consider my rate um but like not for somebody that's going to pay me like if i'm just going to draw one page maybe but very rarely is somebody going to be like oh i'm going to have you draw this 230 page book and pay you 500 dollars per page because you know what that would be that would actually probably cover the cost because you know you'd be getting like a hundred plus thousand dollars instead of you know what you do get paid and i mean i'm not going to be honest like i probably get paid got paid pretty probably on the high end for the last bunch of my books in terms of yeah you know what indie creators can get paid but i also completely maxed out that and it's honestly like if i if if i got paid a, a really good advance to make a big graphic novel i would still a hundred percent have to take on every freelance gig that came my way just to like make ends meet like Plugging there's no the way holes. yeah like there's just no way that it could be financed on what you're paid on the high end like that's on the high end yeah you know yeah <laughs> you're you sort of embodying best case scenario but right like i feel so lucky i feel bad complaining because i feel so lucky um I, I, because i've gotten i've been been lucky with my career but like also i'm still struggling it's not it hasn't it's not like it's been a, a cakewalk and it's not yeah. like it's easy and you know what i mean like and it's it gets harder and harder because it's been you know many years and that high-end number never changes yeah it doesn't go up and you know there, there i think there's so many ways in which comics professionals are just completely discarded like you know if you when you watch these guardians of the galaxy movies they're playing licensed music which costs a lot of money to get in their movies and and yet the people who created the characters 
that these movies are based on are not getting any, any usually aren't getting anywhere near that much money. If they can they help it, they're the not characters. getting any. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, exactly. And we don't have, that's the thing is that we don't have any kind of union. We don't have a writer's guild. We don't, I mean, we don't have a comic artist's guild. We have some upstarts starting up now though. I mean, I think that this tragedy, it's really a, a cartoonist just like myself, younger than me, but a little bit younger than me, not that old. But just like myself, working, drawing as much as he could, and you know he's dead, you know, yeah. and and You're talking about the just, creator of Invader Zim, right? Yeah, uh, it's um, Ian McGinty. Yeah, um, it's it's awful. I mean, like this is what happened in pro wrestling as well. Everybody started dying young, you know, and you and and not only that, the people that are old, old cartoonists end up like old wrestlers that have once you can't use these things anymore your hands yeah yeah what are you gonna do i mean uh i mean you're in the same position as like uh you know a pro wrestler that has their knee blown out they can't do their career anymore you're done because there there is a physical <laughs> toll for sure you know that's why sometimes you go to comic shows and you'll see some of like the big pros they're built like bodybuilders but i think Part of it is they're trying to do that just so they can keep using their hands every oh, day. Oh yeah, dude, you have to like really take care of yourself. Like I will go through if I don't sit sit properly on my chair, which I almost never do it. Like I have to think about it all the time. I just get back pain. It just never goes away. If, if yeah. I sit improperly, I have back pain. Yeah. If I don't sit right, if I sit right, I don't. But you know, and then as you get older you know it gets more worse you know all this stuff it's like there's no health insurance you have to buy your own health insurance and you pay out you know pay a lot of money for it and um because it costs you more money to buy insurance than it would cost a company a company buy like a a group of people yeah a group rate you get it's just you buying your own insurance yeah and it's like i had to have an endoscopy last week and it, it's 500 bucks. It's a five minute procedure. Yeah. Even with insurance, it's $500 plus uh, $70 for the office visit or something like that. And this is something that I had to do because I have a, I have a ulcer. <laughs> like, it's just like, and it's all leading up to the, the ulcers, like stress related. Yeah. And here you have to, to, to fix it. You have to do something stressful i'll pay a huge bill yeah i mean like it's it's a sad state of affairs across the board in our country as far as that goes but you know being an independent contractor is not easy and um you know it's if we don't protect ourselves there's like no way for no time that the exploitation will end it'll just keep getting more and more uh they'll have just more taking more and more away so do you see sort of a remedy maybe starting to take form, take shape possibly with, with I think that there's a there's something awareness? called the um cartoonists co-op um that is a group of cartoonists trying to do a lot of more collective action. I think that we have a lot of power as creators that um we don't realize obviously because we're all we're abused people and we, we don't recognize yeah. our our strength, but um you know, none of these comic books that you see that are produced could be, it could exist without the creator. It couldn't. Yeah. 
and cannot. And it's a totally specialized skill. Um, and it, it, you know, it's something that, uh, we deserve to get paid for. Um, I think so. Yeah. I, I get so much joy from, uh, reading your books, from reading, uh, comics in general. I really enjoy the form and, and the thing that does sort of drive me wild is like, well, I guess if I want to help these guys, I can buy more books, but that doesn't help in a lot of cases. It's in some, yeah, you're right. Because you don't, some cases you're not even getting royalties. It's so yeah. book sales don't mean anything or work for hire. Um, it, it, I mean, it does in the sense that, you know, if the sales for the book are good, you might get another work for hire gig. Yeah. But like, these are all like the worst types of, of hiring of, of jobs, really. I mean, like the fact that no one is an employee at all, like, I don't see how you can't, if you're hiring someone to do something that you want them to work on full time, why can't you just hire them as an employee? Yeah. Or yeah, and to... take, take their taxes out and give them health insurance while they're working on the book. I'm not saying for the rest of their lives, but like, you know, something. If you're it doing like so something needs to be done. If you're doing like a three year run on X Men, then yeah, it, it makes sense. Like yes, healthcare, obviously. Like yes, because Some... I don't know a single comic creator who's working less than full time hours. Yeah. No, I mean, you couldn't. I mean, I'm here constantly. It's a constant battle to try to get as much time as I can at work and still uh, not neglect my duties as a parent. Yeah. And and also to just like see my kids to hang out with them and yeah. just for my own well-being, take yeah. time off from work. But like at the same time, I'm like, if I get sick, like few times over the winter i got sick i couldn't go to work a few days that's just like lost money that money's gone money. yeah. um there's no there's no paid sick days like you just that you just lose the day you lose the money and it's just gone so like you don't take days off i had covid one time when i came in and did a comic because i had to just comics on covid yeah wow so I don't want to end on such a down note. <laughs> so I guess um, here's, here, let's try to find a way to pivot out here. What is one thing that is bringing you light, bringing you joy in this world right now? Oh, lots of stuff. Uh, <clears throat> it's summer months are coming up. Um, yesterday took my kids to the, this is actually awesome. I love it. So there's a, in Philadelphia, there are, um, uh, um, at every playground they have sprinklers yeah and they're cool you know kids can run through the sprinkler we took them to this one downtown and like it's it's great there's tons of kids playing in it and right across from it is a fountain like an enormous city fountain that you're not supposed to swim in but like every kid is swimming in it and there's it's a million people swimming in it and so i took my kids to my son to the um to the sprinkler part and he just looks over at that fountain and he's just like points right at it and he's like we're going there and like, <laughs> so but it was uh, and he got hurt like two seconds into it but he rallied and uh we had a really good time there uh, awesome. at, so i'm all for public uh playgrounds and public water bump for misusing kids. public art yes <laughs> it, it did say no swimming like spray painted on the, the fountain but they just don't enforce it. And and really, how could you? You'd walk in and ruin like 
40 kids is day yeah. completely. Like, are you going to be the fun police police? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Only for adults, but uh, that's great. Well, that's good. We'll, we'll end it there. Uh, I want to thank you for talking with me. And I, I want to just let listeners know again, that if you want to read any books by Brian Box Brown and you should, because I think they're all great. Here are the ones to check out. I'm just going to read them all, all the titles. Okay. <laughs> um, is this guy for real? The unbelievable Andy Kaufman, which uh, is a, uh, the third book I've read about Andy Kaufman, and for my money, the best. Um, Andre the Giant, Life and Legend, which uh, New York Times bestseller. Great story about uh, a fellow North Carolinian, Andre the Giant. Uh, Cannabis, the Illegalization of Weed in America, which um, you're going to read that one and, and really think, I'm a grown-ass man. Why can't I buy uh, weed? This is <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> um, you're uh, – your one nonfiction book, which I thought was really hilarious and, and sad at the same time, Child Star. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Accidental Czar, The Life and Times of Vladimir Put- Putin, which you uh, created with writer Andrew Weiss. And uh, the books we talked about today, Tetris, The Games, People Play, and The He-Man Effect, the latter of which will be released on July 11th. And again, just all great books. Buy them from your local comic book store. If not... I- Buy them on Amazon. Just buy them. Just buy them. Yeah. Just buy Leave them. a review. Leaving reviews on Amazon is helpful. Very helpful. Believe it or not. Um, yeah. And I'm really excited about the He-Man book and I was happy to talk about it today. So thank you for having me on. Absolutely, man. And and best of luck. And I hope uh, that the situation with comic creators, if it doesn't get sorted out in my lifetime, maybe my kid's lifetime. <laughs> we'll see. We'll Let's see. Hope. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much and have a good one. I want to thank you for listening to that interview. And again, Brian Box Brown's book, The He-Man Effect, is coming out on July 11th. Purchase that online or preferably at a local bookstore or local comic book shop. It's a great read. Again, it's really hard to pick up one of his books and not just read the whole thing in one setting. Um, He's very good at what he does, and I hope you enjoy it. I think that's really it for download. We'll be back at some point in the near or maybe distant future. But thank you, folks. Thank you again for uh, listening to the show. And uh, yeah, I'm going to go enjoy the beach now. Bye. Files done. Goodbye.